wherever there are shadows, there are people ready to kick at the darkness until it bleeds daylight. This is Bleeding Daylight with your host, Rodney Olson. Welcome to Bleeding Daylight. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter so that we can continue the conversation. Thank you for your reviews on your favourite podcast apps. They're always a real encouragement and they help others discover Bleeding Daylight so that they can hear the remarkable stories that shed light into the darkness. When I think of today's guest, I think of the word courage. Get ready to be encouraged by a remarkable lady. Wendy Wallace learned the hard way about how to rediscover peace and joy in her life after a flesh-eating bacteria left her as a quadruple amputee. Learning to rebuild her life has taken a lot of prayer and spiritual growth. Considering what she's faced, Wendy has an incredibly positive outlook on life. She's using that outlook to help others around the world to face their own challenges. Today on Bleeding Daylight, we'll find out more about her exceptional life. Wendy, thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you so much, Rodney. I'm excited to be here. Things changed dramatically for you in 2011, and I want to find out more about exactly what you faced. But firstly, let me ask, what was life for you before 2011? Well, it was busy. I was raising three teenagers and they all had different things going on. So between running them around where they needed to go and taking care of our household and my husband and I was running a business and I don't like having the downtime. So it was great. I loved being busy. And so you never suspected that life was going to be anything different than that. I'm sure it had its ups and downs as life with teenagers would. But what was the first inkling that something was not quite right? Well, I had taken my son to uh, one of his, his activities and started to feel a little achy while I was there. I noticed an unusual swelling on my leg, but I didn't think anything of it. And I came home next morning, I woke up and I felt flu-like symptoms. I stayed in bed. My husband was home and took care of things with the kids and I just slept it off. I thought I had the flu. After a couple days, I knew I needed a little more help than what just sleeping it off could be. And we ended up going to the hospital about half, half hour away from our home. Halfway there, I stopped being able to breathe. And so we ended up pulling over and calling an ambulance. They came and got me the rest of the way. And the last thing I remember was them putting the oxygen mask on my face. So this must have been very, very frightening to be going through this. First of all, thinking you've you've just got the flu, you'll get over it like you've done before. And then realizing, no, there's something more serious. And then it getting a lot more serious on the way to get help. So the last thing you remember is that oxygen mask going on your face. What do you remember after that? What was the next time that you started to know what was going on? It was when my doctor and my husband, I had at that point between the oxygen mask and me waking up, they had life flighted me to a 
another hospital that was more capable of taking care of me. I had been in a coma. So they woke me up to tell me that they needed to amputate. And I saw my husband, he was standing there just devastated and he was crying. And, but they told me, this is up to you. We can do this or you can say your goodbyes. Of course, you know, of course, do what you have to do. Yeah, it's a, it, it's a fairly shocking choice, isn't it? <laughs> it is, especially when you don't see it coming. But I did see my hands at that time. I remember it so clearly. They were black and they looked like charbroiled. You know, looking at that, of course, you're like, get it off. That is the last thing I remember. I went back to sleep and woke up as a quadruple amputee. And I had been in a coma all about three weeks. And during that time, I don't know how many surgeries I had. I'm thinking it's like six or seven because the amputations was a single operation, but the rest of it had to do with removing that flesh eating bacteria from my body. They did it bits at a time, but the fever persisted, the bacteria was growing. And the reason for the amputations was that my system was shutting down. And, you know, when your system shuts down, the blood flow to your extremities stops and just really focuses on the important parts. You haven't really been conscious of what's been going on over the the three weeks and you're going in and out of consciousness as they are operating. All this time, your husband is obviously the one who is talking to the doctors, finding out what's going on, and I'm sure he's related back to you exactly what happened. What was life like for him in this time? What were the doctors telling him? It was devastating for him and my kids, and my husband never left my side. Um, Family members took care of the kids. You know, they were in school. The oldest one was trying to graduate. They told him and my kids, you know, she's not going to make it. I really had no chance of survival. And I love this part because my husband just looked him dead in the eye and he said, you know what? I don't believe you. You don't know my God and what he's capable of. We had prayers going all over the country. Our family was spreading the word. People in my business had gotten notice and just everybody across the country was praying. You know, the amputations was what was necessary to save my life. I like to say God saved my life, but I had to lose my hands and feet to make that happen. This choice that the doctor gave you of lose your hands and feet or say goodbye to everyone, even at that point, He's saying that this is your your opportunity, that if we remove your hands and feet, then you're going to live. But realistically, did he believe that that was going to be the cure or was he just hoping that this could stop it and this could be the cure? I believe the doctor just was hoping for the best. My husband knew otherwise. He never had any doubts. (laughs) Never, never. And it's when you're really faced with hard times where you find out what your faith is made of. How was the word getting out to people around 
the world to to be praying for you. What was the process there? Was it people within churches who knew others who were in prayer networks getting the word out? How did that happen? Yeah, pretty much. My husband took my cell phone. He didn't have a cell phone. He learned how to use it while he was in the hospital and started texting people that he knew could handle it. He didn't want to be he wanted to send one message out and then let everybody know between texting and Facebook. That's how people were notified. And I love how I have met people and now have friends on my own Facebook page that had been praying for me. And I don't even know where they came from. And, but we've gotten to be friends because it all started with them hearing about my situation and them praying for me. After the surgery, of course, there's a healing. And I want to find out a little bit about that, of the the process of healing and and rehabilitation. But first of all, what was the point at which the doctors thought, we've caught it, this lady is going to live? When did they think, yes, we've made the right decision and things are going to get better? Oh, you know what? I don't know. I, I I like to think that probably when I opened my eyes on my own, I don't have a whole lot of information, I would say, about that three-week period because, you know, when, when it was all said and done, I would ask my family to tell me, well, what about this and what about that? And a lot of them were just like, uh, no, maybe another time. I don't want to talk about it. So <laughs> there's a, a whole lot that's that's missing, but I get the gist of the thing. But I, I believe it was probably when I opened my eyes. But essentially it was very serious. And yes. finally they started to believe that this God that your husband had talked about might just have something there. <laughs> he might be real after all because – they didn't believe that you were going to make it. Now, tell me about the recovery process because it's all very well to say, yes, the surgery happened and they mm-hmm. removed your hands and feet, but but there's a recovery from that, from surgery, and then a rehabilitation to start living life in, in some sort of normal way again. What did that process look like for you? I spent two months in the hospital, and then from there I spent another month in a rehab facility where I had to be able to maneuver, you know, from my wheelchair to the sofa or the bed or whatever before they would let me go. Interestingly enough, um, my oldest son was graduating and I was not scheduled to get out of the rehab hospital until after his graduation. And I had made such a fuss with those people. They didn't dare let me go because they knew I was going to break out if they weren't going to let me go. (laughs) And so we had made arrangements to do that. And I got to enjoy his graduation. But even in that rehab month, a lot of it is just fuzzy. And I think it had to do with me getting on medication and all of these crazy things and and the things that were happening. I met the man that would build my legs while I was there. And then afterwards, it was about two months, I would say, before I got my first set of prosthetics. When I did come home, walking through the door was just 
wonderful and emotional. But then I had this big old walking wheelchair <laughs> and I had to figure out, of course, they taught me how to use it at the rehab place, but moving around the, the, the corners and getting in the restroom and the, the rooms and, and all of that stuff. I banged up this house so bad. You can't even imagine. It was a slow process. We had to learn how to do things and how to adapt, you know, like opening the refrigerator or brushing my teeth or those types of things. I didn't have hands. So I had to figure out a new way of doing those things. You're a very positive and happy person. That comes across by just talking to you. But were there times when you looked at this all and thought, well, well, what now? Were there times when you started to doubt that you could actually assimilate back into to life and, and feel that you had a purpose again? Absolutely. You know, I was always positive, but I, I like to call it my pity party phase because I always trusted God and I knew he had plans for me, but I, I didn't know what they were. I never blamed him. I never got angry. I was just sad. I was sad because I couldn't be the mom my kids needed. I couldn't cook them dinner and I couldn't do their laundry. And I couldn't be the wife that my husband needed me to be to take care of all the household things and go grocery shopping. And that stuff really saddened me. I knew we were going to be able to figure it out. We just weren't at that point yet. Everything just takes trial and error. When I got my feet, it's cool. You throw these legs on and then you don't even feel like you don't have feet anymore. I'm running around here like everything's normal and there's nothing wrong. I opted for prosthetic arms in the beginning. I had these things called myoelectric arms and they moved based on the impulses of your muscles but they were heavy and they were clunky and they didn't really do anything but open and close. They didn't really serve any purpose. So I tried hooks too, and those just made me cry. So I decided, you know what? I'm not going to use these prosthetics on my arms. I created this wrist strap that I put on my wrist and I stuck a stylus in there and I use it kind of like a finger. It allows me to write and read books and change the channel on the clicker and use the telephone and all of these things. So as the process of figuring these types of things out, I got better and better at that healing. You mentioned that you always had this faith in God and this positivity, but I imagine that going through something like this would be something that would either drive you away from faith or would draw you closer. And for you, it was a growth in your spiritual walk. Tell me how that happened for you. Well, first, my first question was, what did I do to deserve this? But digging into the Bible and our church and the discussions that we would have, I came to realize that it's not always about something that I have done, but maybe something that needs to happen as a result. I started studying the Bible more and just growing my faith. 
I learned that gratitude is a huge part of that. I got into the habit of when something is going wrong, well, let's look at the blessing. Let's find the positive in this. There's got, there's always something to be thankful for. I always say that. And so gratitude. And also the other thing is when you're feeling sorry for yourself, go help somebody else. And this is what I would do. I became an encourager for other people because here I am with no hands and no feet. And I would be having a conversation with people who were whining about the weather or whatever. And I would always stop in the middle of that conversation and I would say, yeah, but look at what's happening over here. This is a great blessing in your life. Stop the negative and let's turn this around. And so through the Bible study and the gratitude and the service and being the hands and feet of Jesus and encouraging other people enabled me to heal and get to that point where I was ready to move on. You're using this idea of of gratitude, knowing that there are many blessings or counting your blessings. When did it turn from being able to do that to people around you to decide, actually, I can do this even further and, and start a, a website, a website that's absolutely full of encouragements for other people? When did that idea come to you? Well, thank you. You know, this is a the best story. My family never saw me as disabled, handicapped, you name it. And I would be sitting here minding my own business and my daughter or one of the boys was up and getting themselves a drink. And I would say, hey, can I have one of those? And they would say, "Uh, sure, you could get that yourself. (laughs) And at first (laughs) I was like, well, that's rude. But then they didn't want me to be stuck. They wanted me to know that I was capable and that I could get this for you, but you can get it too. And so this became just the way that we got me off the couch and into living. Well, one day, my daughter, she's about 21 at the time, she came to me and said, Mom, I want to go tubing and you're coming with me. And I thought she'd lost her ever-loving mind. I said, uh, Megan, what sense does it make to put a woman with no hands and no feet in an inner tube and shove her down the river? How is this a good idea? And she's like, it'll be great. Come on, you're coming with me. I panicked. And it took me about three days to come around to the fact that she wasn't going to kill me. She wasn't going to let me die. And it was probably going to be fun. We gathered all our tubes and our lunches and towels and everything that we needed. It was actually logistically very difficult to even get to the river bank, but we got in it and it's funny because the river was really low that day. I couldn't do nothing to help her. She was pulling me over these rocks and everything to get to these points where we could just float. And I think we were floating for probably three hours. During that time, we were laughing and having the time of our lives. And we were thinking about wow, this great adventure we're on, wouldn't it be cool if we could have more? We could go to Boston and and tour the city and do this, that, and the other thing and go up in a hot air balloon and ride horses and all these things that have 
been on my bucket list forever, but I didn't think were possible. Prior to that, my sons had been pressuring me, well, you should write a book or you should start a blog or just write about your story. It's great. And I was like, nah, I'm no writer. I don't want to do anything like that. Well, here we are floating down the river. All of a sudden, I'm like, you know what? Maybe I could write about this. We could write about our adventures. The people that would read it, maybe they would feel encouraged and not feel quite so sorry for themselves. And so that's what I did. We I survived the river tubing trip. It was probably one of the best days of my life. And I think it was the next day I sat in front of my computer and set up this website and started writing to encourage other people and let them know that there is life beyond tragedy. I learned I was capable of so much more than I was giving myself credit for when we had gone on that river trip. And I knew I could help other people. So that's when I started writing. And it was, you know, I haven't looked back since. I want to dig into that website a a little bit more in a moment, but I must say it must have been incredibly encouraging and empowering to have a family that wouldn't let you say no, who believed, mum, you can do these things and encouraged you to, to take part rather than treating you like the invalid and we've got to serve you the whole time. It, it must have been a big part of your healing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And even to this day, just my family has been my biggest group of cheerleaders that you can imagine. Your family's cheering for you. You're cheering for others through the, the website. What sort of a response has that gathered from people as they've read what you're putting there? I was shocked. In the beginning, it was slow going. But at the end of the month, I would look and see how many readers. And I was like, oh, my goodness, 100 people are reading what I'm writing. Isn't this awesome? And over the years, because it's been about three and a half years now, and now we've got tens of thousands of people who are reading what I'm writing about. They message me, they email me, and I've made some pretty good friends from just the readers. What I'm learning is people need the encouragement. They're praying to God, but sometimes God takes a little bit of time to answer. For me, it took seven years for me to figure out what to do with myself, because I believed that if I didn't have hands, I wasn't capable. When I said earlier, what did I do, or what was my sin, or maybe what was the point of all this. I 100% believe that I had to go through this tragedy to put me in a place where I could help others. I feel like I'm living 2 Corinthians 1.4 where it says God comforts us in our troubles so that we can comfort others. I believe that's why I had to go through what I, I should say we, so that we can be a lighthouse for God, to other people. So as this has has grown your faith, it has taught you even more about gratitude and more about your own ability. The website is a great resource for people who themselves are dealing with disability. It's a great resource for people who are dealing with obstacles in life in any form. But also recently you've, you've been writing about 
how do we actually treat people with a disability? And this must be something that you encounter every day of people who see that you have an obvious disability, but they don't quite know how to treat you or interact with you. Tell me a little of that world. Often when I'm maybe out at the grocery store or wherever, people will approach me and ask me questions. And I welcome that. I am happy. I have little butterflies. They're called, I call them my butterfly tattoos on on my legs. I had them put into my legs when I had them made. And people will approach me and say, oh, I love your butterfly tattoos or God bless you. Or wow, look how strong you are. You're an inspiration. And you know, that's all well and good. And the kids though, the kids have questions and oftentimes they feel like the parents won't, they hold them back from asking, wow, look at her. She's got bionic legs or she has no hands. And I encourage the parents to just let them ask me. I have a friend who's the director of a local daycare and they were having a discussion about people in wheelchairs and disabilities. She called me up and said, will you come and talk to these kids? They've got questions. And this was a couple of years ago when I first went over there and I just sat down with the kids and we had snack time and they asked me whatever weird questions they had. And we had a wonderful time. I've been back a couple times since. And those kids are curious, but a lot of times we don't allow our kids to ask questions. It's kind of like, don't stare, just ask. If you got a question, just ask, but please don't stare at me. I don't like staring. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, we need to, as a society, to, to normalize disability. There are many people in our society who have been pushed to the side or we don't quite know how to deal with that person. So we don't at times, or we ask awkward questions and not sure if we should. I'm wondering if you can remember when you went to that, that center with the children, what some of the weirder questions were that those kids asked you? Like, how do you, how do you eat? Of course, I took my tools with me so that I could break out the, the goods and show them all the the different toys I had to do things like eat or get dressed. How do you get dressed and how do you go to the bathroom? And they're not shy about asking personal questions. And so they, and for the life of me, I can't think of the rest of them. They had like 20 questions and they had them all written out on these giant posters. I actually posted pictures of them on my website And we sat there for about an hour and one question would lead to another. And when all was said and done, they were like, well, how do you drive? How did you get here? And I took them outside and I showed them my car. I've got a couple of minimal adaptations on my car. And they're like, wow, you're just as normal as the rest of us. And that was a really cool experience, I think, for all of us. And they were probably asking a lot of the questions that their parents had, but thought it was better that they not ask. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Tell me what what has been the, the most encouraging thing through this whole process for you? What has been the most encouraging thing for you? Just hearing from my readers. They ask me to pray for them. They share 
their obstacles and they tell me that they're encouraged by the things that I write, by the things that I do. And I always tell them, it's not about me. It's all glory to God. Look to him. He's the source of our strength and guidance. My favorite scripture that I remember this so clearly, in, in spite of the fact that I have such blurred vision about my whole hospital experience, when I woke up and I saw those bandages where my hands and feet had been, I just prayed Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. That has been my mantra for the last almost 11 years. It's certainly a scripture of great comfort. I'm wondering if you can recall perhaps even just one of your readers and the testimony that they've given to you in how you've helped them. The one that comes to mind, she lives in Africa in a village very small and there's hatred for Christians and she's doesn't have a husband anymore, but she's got, she's raising these three children and she doesn't even have food sometimes for money for food. She writes me and she just, she thanks me for the encouragement. She just trusts me with her situation and she tells me to pray for her or ask me rather. And then she sends me updates and I haven't heard from her for a while, but it's stuff like that. The just the little God winks. I have a friend who calls them God winks that just remind me that sometimes people just need a little bit of hope, a little bit of encouragement, and they need reminders that God is right there with them. Wendy, if people want to get in touch with you to get to your website and, and read all the, the amazing articles that you have there, how's the easiest way for them to find you? You can go straight to my website. It's called oneexceptionallife.com. And also, I want to let you know, I created a, a free PDF for your readers. It's called a five-step guide to unlocking peace in the midst of chaos. And then there's usually three ways to connect with me to get some guidance. I have a free Facebook group. It's called Women Living Exceptionally with Joy in Jesus. They can reach out directly. I have groups or one-on-one support. And I also have downloadable resources on my site. Some are free. Others are minimally cost. What I would say is the website is great. There's resources. There's articles all over the place. But if you really want to connect with me, just reach out. I'm happy to help. As you say, I will put connections in the show notes at bleedingdaylight.net so that people can get to the website, they can find you on Facebook and and all those things, as well as that PDF that you mentioned. I'm sure that people will be grabbing that. Uh, We'll put the link in the show notes at bleedingdaylight.net. Wendy, it really has been a delight to hear just some of your story and the encouragement that you're able to give others. Thank you so much for your time on Bleeding Daylight. Thank you, Rodney. This has just been such a blessing to me. Thank you for listening to Bleeding Daylight. Please help us to shine more light into the darkness by sharing this episode with others. For further details and more episodes, please visit bleedingdaylight.net.